0: is still good. So Jonah being told to go to Nineveh went the exact opposite direction and after uh, uh, some time in a boat and then three days uh, in the belly of a giant fish he repented and he obeyed God by going to Nineveh and he preached repentance. He called them to repent. He says 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And the amazing thing was that the people of Nineveh Repented. Uh, They turned to God and away from their sin. They recognized their standing before a holy God, uh, and they turned to him rather than away from him. Uh, And Jonah is important because it's the background to Nahum. See, Jonah went and preached in Nineveh at about the year 760 B.C. And about 100 years later, Nahum is going to write his oracle Against that same city. So a hundred years have transpired since an amazing revival. And now Nahum is going to be writing about the imminent destruction of this same city. And this this Old Testament prophet is going to write three chapters. And all three of them are going to be focused upon the destruction of this city of Nineveh. Chapter 1 is going to decree the destruction. Chapter 2 is going to describe what that destruction is going to look like. And then chapter 3 is going to explain why that destruction is deserved. Uh, And as we we walk through Nahum this evening, uh, what I want to look at is how this Old Testament prophet helps us to better understand the cross. And I would say uh, to draw your attention to three connections uh, between Nahum and the cross. And the first of these connections is seen in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite, a jealous and avenging God, is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries, and he keeps his anger for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet, and he rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel languish, and the blossoms of Lebanon languish. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, and the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are torn down by him. Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete destruction of its place, and will pursue His enemies into darkness. And this is the the first point uh, of connection between Nahum. And the cross, that they both portray God's holy judgment. If you look at how, how Nahum begins, he begins by describing the, the character of God. And in describing the character of God, he's actually quoting God himself. Uh, he's, he's quoting God's autobiography, what God said about himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. And that is how God describes himself. He is uh, slow to anger. Uh, and steadfast, but He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's what we see in verses two and the, the first part of uh, verse three. But then the end of verse three through verse six, uh, the, the prophet Nahum uses a picturesque language to portray God coming down and in His anger shaking up the entire creation. He describes the wrath of God coming down and, and causing the mountains to shake and the hills to melt away. He says that, that the whole earth is upheaved by his presence. And there's a brief reprieve uh, from this judgment in verse 7. Right? Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress. And he knows those who, over, who take refuge in him. But that is really just a contrast of what happens in verse 8. That God is a refuge to some, but he's going to pursue his enemies even into the darkness. This is a sobering scene. And it's spoken against Nineveh. Nineveh is one of the most ancient cities. In Genesis 10, we're told that, that Nimrod founded this city. Probably sometime between in the, the third millennia B.C., this city's probably been around for at least 1,500 years, and now God is saying it's going to be completely destroyed. That he's going to come down upon the earth and wipe it out. And Some might say this, is, this has got to be just an exaggeration. Again, Nahum is, is writing against the most powerful nation in the, the world at that point in time, speaking against Assyria. But about 50 years later... In 612 BC, there's going to be an alliance between the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Scythians, and they're going to come, and they're going to completely destroy the city of Nineveh, and they're going to wipe it off the map such that 200 years later, there's a Greek general who comes through named Xenophon, and he sees the ruins of the city, but he doesn't realize that it's Nineveh. A hundred years after that, Alexander the Great is going to uh, bypass it, not even realizing he's going to fight a battle right next to it, not realizing that this is the great city of Nineveh. When God said that he was going to bring it uh, to its utter ruin and completely destroy it, he meant that. The judgment that he promised came to pass. Nahum declares the holy judgment of God. And the cross is also going to declare that same holy judgment. Yes, God is is loving. God is patient and willing to forgive, which encourages us to turn from our sin and look to him in faith, even as that earlier generation of Ninevites did. But God is also a God who is holy, and he is obligated to judge sin and sinners. Psalm 5 verses 4 through 6 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And this is where we need to realize, even as we were we're singing and we come to this day recognizing our own sin and our own sinfulness and needing to, to be reminded of that and that God's holy judgment against us is righteous. He does not allow the wicked to go unpunished, the guilty to go free. And when God promises judgment, it will come to pass. God poured out his wrath on the Ninevites and and, in numerous other places in the Old Testament, right? Typically what the the world, the one thing that, a few things that the, the world knows about the God of the Bible is that he executes judgment. And there's that typical refrain that, well, the God of the Old Testament is believed to be a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament is to be a God of love. And we would dispel all of that. And it is one God throughout all of human history. But I would say all of the wrath that God pours out in the the Old Testament is but a small foreshadowing of what God pours out upon Jesus on the cross. The, The wrath of God that we see over and over again laid out upon cities and civilizations is the wrath of God that Jesus endured on the cross. Uh, and we will talk much about uh, the physical suffering of Jesus on uh, that day when he was beaten and scourged prior to crucifixion. So his black, or his back would have been bloodied up, and then having to carry his cross to the site of his own execution, Be- being nailed to the cross, and, and suffering on the cross—tremendous physical anguish. But that pales in comparison with the holy wrath of God that he endured on our behalf. Say this is the the first connection point that we have between Nahum and the cross. Both portray God's holy judgment. But if you turn over to to chapter 3 of of Nahum, where where Nahum is going to be describing why judgment is deserved and what will come to pass against the Ninevites, we see a, a second point of connection. That Nahum and the cross both portray God's hostility towards sinners. Nahum chapter 3 verse 1 it says woe to the city of bloodshed completely full of deception and pillage her prey never departs the sound of the whip and the sound of the rumbling of the wheel galloping horses and bounding chariots horsemen charging and swords flaming and spears flashing many slain a mass of corpses there is no end to dead bodies They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will uncover your skirts over your face and to show the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace, and I will throw detestable filth on you and display you as a wicked fool and set you up as a spectacle. And it will be that all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will console her? Where will I seek comforters for you? At the end of chapter 2, God had, had made a proclamation against Nineveh. He says, behold, I am against you. And that same statement is repeated again in what we just read in verse 5. And if you you look and see, so how is it that God is is showing forth the hostility that he has towards Nineveh, this city that is in rebellion against him? How does God show his hostility? Well, verses 1 through 4, we see that there will be suffering and death talks about the swords flashing and many being slain. There would be a a mass uh, execution of that city as judgment for their sins. But then in verses 5 through 7, as God declares that he is against them, there's also a description that they would be a shameful and humiliating spectacle. They would be uh, shown forth to the nations in, in their, their nakedness. They would be uncovered, and they would be judged by all who would observe them. The surrounding nations by the way, all of the surrounding nations had been uh, the, the victims of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were notoriously cruel when they moved in and they conquered a people. They were well known for their cruelty. So all of the the neighboring nations, when Nineveh is going to be judged, there's going to be no compassion. All of those surrounding nations are going to look to Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire and say, they're getting exactly what they deserve. But they are also going to be a warning to the nations. If you look at the end of verse 5, their nakedness would be shown to the nations and to the kingdoms, their disgrace. This is how God promised to judge the people of Nineveh for their sins. And this is how God is going to show his hostility towards them. And this is where we gain some additional insight concerning what God was striving to communicate in the suffering and death of his son. Because what we're reading in this passage, is not directly about Christ. It's not directly about the cross. But what we see as God is proclaiming his hostility towards the Ninevites uh, and those specific marks of how he's going to show his hostility against them, suffering and death, shame and humiliation, and that they would be a warning to the nations, all of those same marks of hostility are seen in the cross. Jesus suffered greatly leading up to the cross. And he was whipped and beaten, forced to carry his cross. And then he endured shame and humiliation of the cross. We have to understand that crucifixion had... it, It was used by the Roman Empire to dehumanize somebody. It was used by the Roman Empire as the ultimate spectacle of execution, humiliation, and warning. see, when somebody was crucified, uh, they weren't crucified in the backwoods. They were crucified outside of a city, right next to the road, up on a hill. So that everybody who would pass by, either entering into or exiting from the city, everybody would look up and see that individual on the cross. And, and those who were crucified were usually crucified because they were guilty of insurrection. And the Romans were, were striving to communicate something. If you rebel against Rome, this is what will happen. This is going to be your fate. The, the, the two men who were crucified on either side of Jesus... They were probably uh, cohorts with Barabbas, the man who was traded and exchanged for Jesus. And what was Barabbas uh, to be executed for? Insurrection. Rebellion against Rome. The Romans used crucifixion in the most humiliating way. Those who were crucified were more than likely crucified without any clothing. The ultimate shame and humiliation. Everybody walking past and everybody who was walking past, those who were being crucified, would be mocking. They understood their role in this spectacle of humiliation. You were walking past, you were charged, you were expected to heckle that individual. That is exactly what we we heard as Matt read through Mark 15 All those passing by, hey, you were supposed to be king of the Jews, right? Why don't you just come on down? If you're really the son of God, come down and save yourself. It was this humiliation and this ultimate warning. Nineveh's judgment was intended to be a warning to the surrounding nations. The Romans used crucifixion as a warning to everyone. But what's amazing is that Rome was trying to send a message against insurrection against them. But God flipped that on its head, and God sends an even bigger message. He's giving a warning to sinners. All of these marks of hostility are actually uh, warnings and directed towards us. So how is this directed towards us? Jesus was the recipient of all of that. Yeah, but Jesus was the sinless son of God. He deserved absolutely none of that. Absolutely none. But he endured what we deserve even here and now. Isaiah 53, which you are familiar with, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The cross is the spectacle of all spectacles against sin and sinners. It warns of a judgment far greater than the judgment of Nineveh, even far greater than the global flood of Noah's day. I love the way Tony Ranke puts it in his book, Competing Spectacles. He says, even more expressive than the global flood, the cross of Christ was a public display of God's righteous anger toward billions of sins, once passed over and now judged in the full manifestation of his wrath in visible human history. See What the Romans intended to be a warning, God flipped on its head. So This is actually a warning about sin against a holy and righteous God. And even then, God is going to flip it even more so, and that, that symbol of humiliation is also going to be Christ's exaltation. Amen? But here's what we need to, to think about. And again, in, in our, our usual way of thinking, we see that the cross as a demonstration of love, and it absolutely is. It was love that motivated Jesus to go to the cross. Even as we saw on Sunday, love for God the Father and love for us. But we we can't just exclusively say it was only love. But we need to understand the spectacle uh, of crucifixion and what God is seeking to communicate to us the seriousness of our sin against Him. And I would again say, not just sinners in general, but also sinners specifically. The cross shows you and I what we deserve. The cross shows you and I the wrath of God that we should face and that we should experience. Every angry thought or word, every covetous or or lustful glance, every act of theft or lying word. Every idolatrous desire raised up against the knowledge of God. Every sin is worthy of holy wrath because it is committed against a holy and infinite God. And Jesus endured what we deserve for our sin because a holy God must judge sin. He cannot let the guilty go free. That's why he sent his Son, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. So Nahum and the cross both portray God's holy judgment and portray his hostility towards sinners, but they also both portray something else. Nahum and the cross both portray the proclamation of good news. If you if you turn back in Nahum to chapter one, verses 14 and 15, speaking against Nineveh in this First verse of 14, or verse 14, Yahweh has commanded concerning you that there will no longer be seed from your name, from the house of your gods. I will cut off graven image and molten image, and I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. And verse 15, behold on the mountains the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace, and celebrate your feasts, O Judah, pay your vows. For never again will the vile one pass through you. He is cut off completely. See, in these two verses, the prophet is proclaiming destruction upon Nineveh, but deliverance for Judah. And the picture of verse 15 is out of a messenger coming onto the hills that surround Jerusalem. It's this messenger running up on the hill and just shouting for joy that there is peace for the city of Jerusalem. And, and what would be the, the cause of that peace? He's, this messenger is proclaiming peace because Nineveh is destroyed. Because the Assyrian Empire, which had been the enemy of the, the, the people of God for so many years and who had come against them numerous times, that empire, that city is overthrown and destroyed. That is the reason for the peace that is proclaimed. But actually, what's amazing here is Nahum is quoting another prophet. He's, he's quoting Isaiah, who wrote uh, about 100 years prior. Uh, and he's quoting Isaiah 40, verses 9 and 10, and Isaiah 52, verse 7. And both of those passages proclaim uh, that God is sovereign, that, that the messenger bringing peace is proclaiming our God reigns, that he is in control. And so what Nahum is seeking to communicate Is that the sovereign God who reigns over all is has destroyed Nineveh and brought peace to Judah and to Jerusalem. But I would ask you to turn over to Romans chapter ten. Because the apostle Paul is going to pick up this theme. He's going to pick up all of these threads. He's going to tie them together. Romans chapter ten. Beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And what is the word of faith which we are preaching? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the good news. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And then look at this. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. See, in in Nahum's passage, The messenger is bringing good news uh, of peace because Nineveh has been defeated here. The apostle Paul is picking up that same line of thinking and he's saying we can proclaim peace because sin has been defeated. Because death has been defeated. God, uh, the sovereign one, has come and he has defeated sin and overcome death and he is bringing peace. And the cross where our Lord died, is that place of victory. It is where the the power of sin and death are broken by a sovereign God. And now how blessed are the feet of those who carry forth this good news. Jesus died to save sinners. He lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death so that all who look to him in faith can be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. We can be forgiven and brought into relationship with God the Father. And and that good news that's carried forth uh, is what we uh, are called to respond to. Uh, That's the good news of Good Friday. That Christ died so that we could be saved. That there is peace that is proclaimed. But this is what we need to recognize. These points of connection that we see in Nahum and in the cross. That God is holy. And his holy judgment is to be poured out upon everybody who has rebelled against him. We also see that there is a hostility towards uh, us as sinners. We are to be warned by the cross. We are also called to trust in the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. The good news that if we have believed that, that we are called to go and carry forth as well. Are you willing to trust in that good news? Are you willing to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as your only hope, trusting and relying upon what he has accomplished for you to bring you into fellowship and relationship with God? If you look back at verses 7 and 8 in chapter 1, I kind of sped past those as we read that. But I love those verses. Those of you who love in and out Nahum 1-7 is uh, on uh, in and out I think it's the, the, the rapper uh, of the double-double. Amen, Amen. yes. <laughs> but why would in and out choose that verse? Because it says, Yahweh is good. We hold that intention with his holy judgment, with his hostility towards sinners. He is good, and he is a strong defense in the day of distress. And he knows those who take refuge in him. There's deliverance. If you look to him, you will be delivered. But verse 8 is again that contrast. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete destruction of its place. Speaking of Nineveh, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. It is either destruction or deliverance, and both are at the hand of God. And both are on display in the cross of Christ. Both are proclaimed by Nahum in this small Old Testament book, and both of them are proclaimed uh, in the crucifixion of the Son of God on that Good Friday nearly 2,000 years ago. The question is just how are we going to respond? Will we trust and look to Jesus in faith, or will we continue to depend upon ourselves, trusting in our righteousness, our attempt at righteousness, or relying fully and completely upon Christ?